Well, let's take our Bible, if you haven't done so yet, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And this is perhaps the greatest chapter in all of the Bible that so clearly and undeniably and repeatedly and thoroughly presents the deity of Jesus Christ. There is no chapter like it that just piles proof upon proof upon proof upon proof from the Old Testament to show that Jesus is, in fact, truly God and worthy of our worship. So you see there in the bulletin the title of the sermon that's really not all that flashy, More Reasons Why Jesus is Greater Than the Angels. Last week I preached on why he's greater, and today are more reasons why he is greater than the angels. And I pray that God will use his word to encourage all of our hearts. When we read the Bible, this is the word of the living God. Boys and girls, I hope that many of you have your Bibles out as well. And if you can read, I hope that you can follow along. Let's read Hebrews chapter 1. Follow with me. I'll read the whole chapter. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The story is told of the Roman general by the name of Titus. He lived in the second century B.C., a couple hundred years before Christ. His name was Titus Flamininus. He was instrumental in the defeating of Philip of Macedon and overthrowing the Greek Empire. When this Roman general, who was a mastermind, Titus, liberated many of the imprisoned Greeks, the story is told that many of those who were liberated gathered together. They clustered around the tent of Titus, the Roman general, and they chanted his praises and they exclaimed how great he was with passionate, loud fervor. They all said, the Savior, the Savior, the Savior. I mean, can you imagine such a time of festive joy, a time of gladness when you've been liberated and you've been delivered by this king, the Roman general of Titus, Savior, Savior, Savior. But how much more? How much more, with deeper emphasis and with greater passion, can every child of God who has been liberated and delivered and freed, not just from 
a physical army, but we've been delivered from the power of sin. How much more can we circle around our Savior, the Lamb, and chant forth his glories and say, Jesus, 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 the Lamb, he is worthy of our worship and our praise. What I hope to do today is that God's word would shine so clearly in your heart and in your mind so that you and I, as it were, will surround the lamb and all together chant, what a savior, what a savior, what a savior. And can't we all together acknowledge the truth of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, when Peter is writing and he talks about Christ being precious. He is precious. I mean, we we, we see the power of Christ, we see the beauty of Christ, we see the glory of Christ, we see the matchless majesty of Christ, we see the beauty of Christ that eclipses everything else, we see the glory of Christ that outshines everything else, we we see the, the perfect deity of Christ that is absolutely unmatched, and we see the beauty and the perfection of Christ in his cross and his atonement, and his redemption, and his justification, and his love that was poured out at Calvary. And yes, we acknowledge with Peter in 1 Peter 2, 7, yes, our Christ is precious. He is precious. You and I could look through a telescope, and we could see the galaxies that are far away, and we could marvel, and rightly so, but Christ is far, far more glorious. You and I could survey the mountain range of the Swiss Alps and we could marvel at the stunning beauty and yet Christ is more beautiful. We could read of the royal, majestic, undisputed kingships of antiquity and and we would marvel at the power of kings. But Christ is far more powerful and far more precious. We could learn of the courage and the bravery of warriors, of armies of old, and we could marvel at their courage, and yet Christ, Christ is far, far more precious. We could study the parts of the human body, and we could learn about the intricate design of the human body, and and we may marvel in wonder, and yet Christ, the creator of the human body, is so much greater, so much more beautiful. We could study the angelic realm. We could look at the classes of angels and the roles of angels and the functions of angels and the ministry of angels. And we could marvel and rightly so at the greatness of angels. But Christ is far, far more precious even than angels. Jesus Christ is precious. He is superior He is better. We say all through the word of God with the writers of scripture, who is like the Lord? Who's like him? There is none like him. And yet in the early church and in Judaism in the first century, there were some who had such a high estimation of angels, like we learned last week, that they were tempted to worship angels. We know this from Colossians chapter 2 and verse 18, when Paul even says to the Colossian church, don't let people deceive you. Don't be deluded in foolish argument and the worship of angels. So it was common for people to have such a high esteem, even a veneration of angels, that many even in the church were tempted to worship angels. Well, that's... What you need to know for Hebrews 1 and 2 to make sense. You need to understand that in the early church, as the gospel was known and believed and spreading, that there was also a mindset in Jewish thinking and Jewish writing that the angels were so great and so lofty and worthy 
of honor, and some even worshipped them. I want to give you a crash course for a minute on angelology just by way of introduction because there's a lot of bad thinking about angels, right? Let's just kind of lay it out and be clear that angels aren't the cute, chubby, Cupid-like creatures that we might read about or see in pictures and paintings and movies. No, no, no. Angels are powerful. They are remarkable. They are invisible. They are purposeful, and whenever human beings come into contact with angels, they're fearful. They're fearful. Listen to this. According to Job 38, verse 4, angels are created beings. Psalm 91, 11 tells us that God sends angels to protect God's people. We know from Matthew 18, verse 10, that angels continually look into the face of the Father in heaven. We learn in Matthew 22, verse 30, that angels are spirits and they do not marry. We learn in Luke chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 8 that angels are messengers. They are messengers sent by God to deliver a divine message to people. It could be Luke 2, there is a Savior that has been born for you in Bethlehem. It could be Daniel chapter 8 when God reveals through the angel the plan for Israel and for the nations in Daniel 8. We read in John chapter 20 that there are angels who are sitting in the empty tomb and they are marveling and proclaiming and testifying the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 7.53 tells us that angels played a part in the giving of the law. We read in 1 Peter 1.12 that angels long to look into the gospel message and the angels marvel at this gospel of redemption. Jesus has accomplished for his people. In 1 Peter 3.22, all angels, the whole angelic realm, is subject to Jesus Christ as he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We learn in Revelation 3, verse 5, what a stunning reality this is, that angels are going to witness the Lord Jesus when he confesses the names of his own people before the Father in heaven one day. We learn in Revelation 5.11 that there are myriads of angels, myriads of angels that are right now around the throne worshiping God. We read in Revelation 8, Revelation 9, Revelation 16 that angels are those who will bring and dispense the tribulation judgments at God's command. We learn even in Psalm 103, verse 20, that angels are commanded to worship and bless the Lord. Indeed, angels are great creatures, but created creatures. They are mighty, they are powerful, but they worship God and they worship Jesus. Oh, yes, yes, angels are great. Angels are powerful. Angels are worthy of study. But let's just remember that angels are messengers of God's truth, like Revelation 1.1 says. There's the the archangel as a class of angels. Uh, Michael is one of the archangels. Daniel 10 mentions that. And then there is another class of angels that we might call the cherubim. The cherubim. These are the flashing angels of fire who are living creatures diligently guarding the holy presence of God and the awesome glory of God. That's what the cherubim do. And then there's a related class of angels called the seraphim. They're mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6. These are, the, these are the burning ones, the fiery angels that are connected with the holiness of God. With two wings, they cover their feet. With two, they cover their face. And with two, they fly, protecting the holiness of God. And then in Revelation 4 and 5, there are these interesting creatures called the living creatures. The living creatures. They have six wings and they're involved in noteworthy worship surrounding heaven's throne and worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. But let's, let's just recognize altogether that angels are spirit beings. That's what it is to be an angel. They are non-physical beings, although at times they might take physical characteristics, but they are angelic spirit beings praising God in heaven. 
They served Jesus in his earthly life. They proclaim messages of truth. They comfort believers. They protect believers. They do God's bidding on behalf of believers. They will serve at Christ's second coming, and they will forever marvel at this thing called the gospel. They marvel. Now, hear this. As great as angels are, angels are great, but they're not God. Angels are powerful, but they're not all-powerful. In Hebrews 1 and 2, Octor, that's the Latin word for author or originator. We call him Octor because we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Octor is saying to the early church, to the early believers, oh, you're dazzled by angels, are you? Well, guess what? The angels are dazzled by Jesus. Oh, you're, you're, you're totally, totally enamored with angels. Well, angels are enamored with the Son. Why? Why worship angels? Why honor them and worship them? You ought to worship and honor and elevate the Son. And that's what Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 is all about. Octor is making the case that Jesus is better. And that's the whole book of Hebrews. He's going to show theme after theme after theme that Jesus is better. And here he begins by telling us that Jesus is better than the angels. Now, look at Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, we read of the unrivaled glory of the Son. Who is he? Who is the Son? And and what did he do? And we read about that in the opening three verses. And then beginning in verse 4, all the way to verse 14, we have the affirmation, the proofs. So you've made a statement about the Son, prove it. You've said in verse 4 that Jesus is better, prove it. Well, that's what verses 5 to 14 do. They prove that he's better. When we come together next week in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we're going to see a warning passage on how important it is to not drift, but to pay attention to the Son, to cling to the Son, to not forsake him or rebel against him. I think of where we are today in Hebrews 1 in a couple of illustrations, and maybe I can sort of set the stage where we are. I think of it like the opening talk show before a professional sporting event, before a baseball game or a football game or a hockey game. You've always got these announcer guys and they're sitting around a table and they're talking and they're strategizing and they're planning and they're talking about different players and all that. Imagine with me if one of them said, yeah, but this one is the best. Well, all the other announcers are going to say, well, prove it. Why do you think so? That's what Hebrews 1 now in verses 5 to 14 is. Let me give you all the proofs why Jesus is better. Or be like this illustration. You're driving down the highway and you see a sign on the side of the road that says best barbecue ribs in the whole world. And you think a lot of people make that claim. Prove it. Why do you think you've got the best ribs in the whole world? And as you continue to drive, you see billboard after billboard and sign after sign with reviews and awards and proofs and reasons and testimonials and all these people trying to show why these are the best. That's what Hebrews 1 is doing. He's made all the statements about the Son in verses 1 to 3. Now he's giving you proof. He's going to give you proof. We began it last week, and we'll continue it today. The author is going to give you five compelling reasons why Jesus is better. Now, remember, in verse 5, we began last week, Jesus is better. Why? He's the divine son, number one. He's the divine son. Remember that? We looked at Psalm 2. We looked at 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the son of God. You see it there in verse 5 two times. Jesus is the son. So what? What does that mean? He's a son. Well, in the Jewish thinking, in biblical language, that means intimate relationship. 
It means that Jesus is the covenant king. He's the Davidic greater king. He has eternal relations within the Godhead. He's the foremost one of the Father's love. What angel could ever have that title? Answer, none. Jesus is the divine son. And then we looked at the second compelling reason. Remember this last week? He is the worshipped firstborn. He is the worshipped firstborn in verses 6 and 7. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 32 and from Psalm 97 and even Psalm 104 as well, where where the, the octor wants to show that angels are created beings. They serve God and they do God's bidding. Ah, but, but Jesus, you see it there in your Bible? You see it there in verse 6? Jesus is the firstborn. It has nothing to do with chronology like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. It has to do with the highest position of honor. He, he is the most honored one. He is the most prestigious one. He is the one who has the highest position of preeminence. God is commanding all the angels to worship the Son. So should you. What angel? What angel is the worshipped firstborn? Answer, none. Jesus is better. Today, what I want to do is backtrack a little bit from where we were last week and give you the last three compelling reasons. If you're taking notes, this is number three. Here's the third compelling reason why Jesus is better. Ready? He is the righteous king. He's the righteous king. I have a hymn that I love and I sing it often in my own prayer time. It's written by Henry Light in the 1800s. Praise my soul, the king of heaven. To his feet your tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore his praises sing. Alleluia, alleluia, praise the everlasting king. It's one thing to have a king, and there's a lot of places around the world that have had kings, but it's another thing to have a righteous and a good and a perfect king. And that's what these verses are going to show. That's what Octor is going to show. He wants to give a compelling proof to all of those who are hearing this original sermon and to you and me that Jesus is better. And to do that, he's going to quote Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Now, Psalm 45 is a royal, it is a messianic wedding psalm. David wrote it, but it points to a greater David. He wrote it, and it is pointing to the greater king who would come. He is called God, and he is righteous in his kingship. You see it right here in Psalm 45. If you turned there, look at verse 6 of the psalm. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. What angel has ever been termed and titled with these designations? If you go back to Hebrews 1. Why does the author quote this in Hebrews 1 verse 8? Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You know why? Octor wants you to know this about your king. Write this down. Number one, he is God. He is God. And that's what he says, verse 8. But of the Son, God says, your throne, O God. This Son is God. He is divine. Second, he's eternal. He's eternal. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Kings in the world have come and kings have died. Monarchs come and monarchs die. Pharaohs come and pharaohs die. Emperors come and they go. But Jesus, the king, is eternal. The end of verse 8, you see, third, this king is righteous. He's righteous. The righteous scepter is the scepter of your 
kingdom. You know what that means in the Jewish thinking? That means this king has royal authority and he executes his rule justly. Often in the Hebrew language, when we talk about a just king, it has the idea of order. There's there's something lacking in authority nowadays all around the world, and that's order. And yet in the Hebrew mindset, oftentimes the idea of justice can include the idea of order. Our God executes his rule justly with order, with perfect royal divine authority. This is the son. Not only that, fourth, the king is holy. Look at verse 9. You have loved righteousness and you have hated lawlessness. He is holy. He loves what is right. And he hates what is evil. I am becoming more and more convinced that one of the marks of a growing Christian is not just having a right relationship with God. That's good. But it's also having a proper relationship with sin. Meaning, the mark of a growing Christian is the more that you are being conformed to Jesus, the more that you will hate your sin. We we cannot grow closer to Jesus and be indifferent toward our sin. And yet we see it so perfectly in our king. In verse 9, he is the righteous God, the righteous king, the eternal king. He loves righteousness and he hates, hates lawlessness. Is that true of you? As you're growing in your Christian life, you love your Savior. You love the truth. You love the gospel. And you think, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? I mean, out of all the sinners, I'm like the foremost of them all. You see your sin and you hate it. That's what Jesus modeled so perfectly. He's holy. Also, we see that he is anointed. He is anointed at the end of verse 9 because the author says, Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. What does that mean? That he is set apart for a divine mission. Oh, what what a king. What a king we have, that we have a king who has been anointed. And not only that, look at the end of verse 9, with the oil of gladness above your companions. You know what that teaches? Your king is joyful. He is joyful. He has the oil of gladness. And he has been anointed by God with the oil of gladness. And you and I, as we trust in him, we receive joy as it flows from him, the fountainhead, and it comes to us. That's why Psalm 100 says, serve the Lord with gladness. What is Akdor doing? Look, here's a proof. Here's a proof why, verse 4, Jesus is better than the angels. What angel has been given the title of God? What angel has been given the title of a righteous king? What angel can claim all of these truths in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, which comes from Psalm 45? Can any angel claim that answer? No. Christian, hear this. Right now, right now, this very minute, Jesus is sitting in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, governing all things by his powerful decree. We know that from Ephesians chapter 1. We know that according to Revelation 19, he's going to return on a white horse. He's going to come with righteousness. He's going to come with indignation. He's going to return as king to conquer. Revelation 19 says that. And then we learn in the Bible that he will reign on the earth, sitting on David's throne for a thousand years. Revelation 20 says that. But but it doesn't end with a thousand years. Daniel 7 says, And his reign will have no end forever and ever. The Son of Man is worthy of worship. What's the point? What's the implication for all of us? Who can be compared 
with the Son. Who? Angels? Anything you could ever love, worship, desire, crave in life that could win your heart and tug your heart, what can be compared to the Son? Who can be like Him? Answer, nothing. He is unparalleled and He is matchless and He is precious and He is perfect because, number three, He is the righteous King. Let me give you a fourth reason. Again, here's what Octor is doing. He's giving proofs. Let me prove that he's better. Let me prove that he's better. Number four, because he is the unchanging creator. Why is the son better and why is he worthy of worship? He is the unchanging creator. Creator. Now, isn't creation amazing? I mean, we could all just marvel at creation. We, we could just talk back and forth about the marvels of creation. And you and I can look around and things look and seem so permanent and stable and secure. But, but one day, creation is going to be rolled up and uncreated. Some estimate that there are three trillion trillion trees on the earth. I don't know how they figure that out, but some do. They say that planet earth travels through space at 67,000 miles per hour orbiting around the sun. We learn that lightning bolts can reach 54,000 degrees Fahrenheit and lightning bolts can move 30,000 times faster than a bullet. The continent of Africa covers 5,000 miles. That's more than three times bigger than the United States. Some believe that our Milky Way has 200 billion stars, and that's just one of billions of galaxies. The sun is as big as 100 Earths that are placed side by side, and we also learn that about a million planet Earths could fit inside our sun. What a creation. What a creation that our God has made. And, and, and these things that we look and we, and we understand and we study them and, and they feel so permanent and they feel so secure and they just appear so amazing. And we read in John chapter 1 verse 3 that apart from Christ, nothing has come into being that has come into being. He made it. He made it all. Well, now... For the next proof of argumentation that the Son is better, according to verse 10 of Hebrews 1, he's going to go back to Psalm 102. Now, Psalm 102 is an amazing psalm. It is a psalm. It is a prayer to God, a prayer of a suffering believer. And he's suffering. And he acknowledges how frail he is. He acknowledges how weak he is. He acknowledges that he's suffering in life, but he finds hope in the power of God and in the creation of God. God made all things. We read in Psalm 102, I'm reading verse 25 of the psalm. Of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. What is Octor, the author of Hebrews, doing? He wants to prove that the Son is better than the angels. And he wants to give you this argument to prove it. The Son is God because he is the creator of all things. He is the unchanging creator of all things. He is preexistent, eternal, lasting, and secure. What angel has that title? What angel has made all of creation? Answer, none. Now, if you have your Bible open to Hebrews 1, in verse 10 and 11 and 12, here's what Octor is wanting to show you. 
about your unchanging creator. Number one, he is divine. It's it's what he said earlier, but look in verse 10. And I want to show you this in your own Bible. Verse 10, and you, Lord, the word for Lord in the Old Testament is only used for God. This is talking about Jesus, the son. He's the Lord. He's the almighty one. He's the powerful one. He is the Lord. He's divine. Second, this teaches us that Jesus, the son, is pre-existent. You know why? Verse 10 gives you the time. In the beginning. There's no evolution here. There's no millions of years. This is in the beginning. In the beginning. This is a time phrase. In the beginning, Jesus, the Lord, took action. Meaning, he's pre-existent. Jesus existed before he took on human flesh. He had no beginning. You from the beginning. Third, he's not only divine, not only pre-existent, but he's creator. You, verse 10, laid the foundation of the earth. What a, what a great way in the original Greek, you, you yourself. Emphasis, you, the Son, the Lord, you laid the foundation. You are actively involved in creation. After that. We read in verse 11 that he is eternal. They will perish, but you remain. They will become old like a garment, like a mantle. You'll roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you're the same. Jesus is eternal. You remain. Now look with me at something that is so cool about verse 12. The author says, like a mantle, you will roll up the heavens. You will roll them up. What does that mean? Well, in the beginning, Jesus began the universe at creation. And he's also going to finish the universe at the consummation when the new heavens and the new earth come about. From beginning to end, this son is worthy of worship. He created it, and he's going to roll up the heavens again one day. From beginning to end, to the final transformation of all things in Revelation 21.1, a new heavens and a new earth is created. Jesus. Jesus does it. He does it. He's the one who does it. He's the one who created it, and he's the one who's going to recreate it. Then, end of verse 12. Do you see in Hebrews 1 here what Octor says? But you are the same. You're the same, and your years will not come to an end. What angel can claim this? Who, Who in all creation can have this said of them? No one, no angel, no creature, no person, no small g God, only the Son. He is, he is the unchanging creator. Now, we have seen in all of these points that he is the divine son. We have seen that he's the worship firstborn. We have seen that he's the righteous king. We have seen that he is the unchanging creator. And there is something so great about all of this talk about Jesus, the son, as the unchanging creator. Ready for this? This is comfort for you and for me. Because you know why? We are frail. And we change. And our world changes. And economics and politics and all the global issues change. But our Savior who is precious and God and true and reliable never changes. Never. I mean, this is the one who gives such comfort To you and me, that in a world that is changing, and we think, boy, the world now isn't the world that maybe you knew some decades ago. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. Hebrews 13 will say that. What else is really neat about this talk about Jesus as creator is this. Not only did the sun create light in the darkness, Genesis 1, but guess what? He has the power to create spiritual light in a dark heart. He has the power to do that. Oh, he he made the world. He founded the world. He upholds the world. And yet he saves our souls and he secures our souls and he upholds our souls and he keeps us until the end. He creates new life in us and he maintains and secures and holds us fast. This is why he's better. Compelling reasons why he's better. But Octor is not done. He gives one more. Number five. If you're taking notes, why is Jesus better? It's almost like Octor saves the best for last. Now, here's why. Listen carefully. He's going to quote this right here in verse 13. And Hebrews, listen, Hebrews chapters 5 to 10 is going to be a commentary on this. So we're going to touch on it now. I'll preach on it now, but we're going to study it a lot more in coming weeks and months that are ahead. Number five, Jesus is the exalted conqueror. He's the exalted conqueror. And we said it earlier when we recited the Christology Creed, the Ligonier affirmation of Christ. Even in the Apostles' Creed, you know the Apostles' Creed, it's the oldest creed of doctrine in the Christian church. It goes all the way back to 140 A.D. And in that creed, the Apostles' Creed, there's a part of it that says, On the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Why would that be important for the sun to rise and be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Well, right here in verse 13, you see it in Hebrews 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels? Which of the angels did God ever say? Verse 13, he's quoting from Psalm 110, which we read earlier. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, imagine with me if we're living in the ancient world. We're living in a walled city and there's a king and, and the army and the soldiers are keeping watch and they're roaming the streets at night. But you've received an invitation to the dinner party of the king of your city. And so you go to the city, you, you go to the palace of the king, you go to where he lives, you, you go at your proper time and you're all decked out in the right apparel and you're there and you think that maybe he's going to give you a spot at the dinner party, maybe in the next room or maybe another quarter, but you're just happy and thankful that you were invited to the, to the party. But he pulls out the chair right next to him at his right hand. Now, in our culture, if you sit at the head of the table, that might be an honorable position, perhaps. But in biblical times, to sit on the right, and then after that to sit on the left, is the most honorable. It is the most dignified position. God the Father says to the Son, sit. At my right. The the, the most honored, the most dignified position. That's why in John chapter 5, in verse 23, we read this. All must honor the Son, even as we honor the Father. We we must honor the Son because the Father honors the Son. Sit at my right hand, the most honorable, the most dignified position. To, To sit means that the work is finished. Angels stand, but the Son sits. In fact, you're here in Hebrews 1. Just keep your finger here. Go to Hebrews 10 real quick. 
And let me show you Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11. Speaking of the Son, Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, here it is, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What priestly work, what perfect work, what saving work that he has accomplished the work that the Father has given him to do. We read in verse 3 that he makes purification of sins back to Hebrews 1. And the Father says, sit, sit at my right hand. Now go back to Hebrews 1, and in verse 13, the Father says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, hold on for a sec. This isn't just a king. This is a warrior king. This isn't just a powerful monarch. He is the exalted, victorious, conquering Warrior. The implication, and Hebrews is going to bring it out repeatedly, is that the Son of God is going to come back one day and he's going to destroy all of his enemies and he's going to set things right. And in verse 13, when God the Father says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Okay, picture this with me. Boys and girls, you can really latch onto this. Think of a king in the ancient world, like the book of Joshua gives an illustration. When you fight another army and you defeat them, you win, you have the battle. And the foes are lying dead on the ground. And the king is dead on the ground. You as the king would go to the defeated ones and you would put your foot on their neck. As a picture of conquering, of victory, of triumph. He's not just a king. He is the exalted conqueror. And you know what? For the believer, for you and me, this this is so comforting. This is so comforting because we know that this son of God will never be defeated. No human army, no angelic army. No no powers of hell could ever destroy Christ. How secure and comforting and hopeful it is that we have a strong, conquering warrior who has the victory. But for the unbeliever, This is terrible and dreadful and frightful. Because if the unbeliever dies in this state, you're the dead one on the ground with his foot on you. To to, to meet this conqueror in his righteous wrath directed at you because of your unbelief and because of your rebellion and because of your sin, there's no hope. And yet, the text says, to which of the angels, to which of the angels did God ever give the exalted position, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool under your feet. Jesus is the great king who will vanquish all of his foes. I suppose we should all ask the question, Am I on the Lord's side or not? Am I his? Am I in the Lord's army? Am I loved by him? Am I bought by him? Have I been redeemed by this strong king? Or right now, are you opposed to this king? 
and he's opposed to you. Oh, what do you do? There's no other option but to wave the white flag of surrender and say, I surrender to you, Jesus. I don't live for myself. I don't trust in myself. I can't rely on my own doings anymore. I receive you and you alone as my Savior and my Lord and my God and my King. Which of the angels? Which of the angels did did God ever say all of these titles to? And the implied answer is none of them. Implication, Christ is better. He's better. Remember that opening illustration, right, of the, of the sports announcers? Oh, this one is better. Prove it. Well, that's what he's been doing. Oh, Christ is better. You're driving down the road and you see the sign for the best barbecue ribs. Prove it. He has shown Christ is infinitely better than anyone and anything else. More beautiful than the evening sunset over the ocean. Christ is better. More stunning than the Milky Way seen on a clear night sky, Christ is better. More thrilling than a husband and wife welcoming a new baby into the world, Christ is better. More costly than the rare gemstone Tanzanite, Christ is better. More awesome than the eight-foot wingspan of a bald eagle flying overhead, Christ is better. More dazzling than a beautiful bride walking down the aisle, Christ is better. Better, superior. He's more lovely. He is precious. He is better. Look at verse 14. Hebrews ends, Hebrews 1 ends with Octor giving the big point. Angels are great, angels are powerful. But look at verse 14. Are they not all? I love the Greek word, deacons. Aren't they just ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who are going to inherit salvation? That's you and me. I mean, angels are those who are dispatched by God to serve us. Why would we worship them? Why worship them? Angels are sent by God. They do service for God. They do service for the sake of the elect. And I love how we are described in verse 14, those who will inherit salvation. What a phrase. Inherit salvation. What a God. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Jesus said in the word of God, Repeatedly, many truths about what we will inherit. We inherit the kingdom of God. We inherit the promises of God. We inherit incorruption. We inherit eternal blessings. What, what, what a God who has given so many blessings to us as his beloved children and angels are dispatched as God's messengers to serve us. Why? Would we worship them when they are on mission to serve us? Okay, so maybe you're not tempted to worship angels. But anything that could fill that void in your heart, sex, money, power, comfortable life, work, honor, prestige, Why live for that? Why give all of your attention to that? Why give all of your energy to that? When the sun is so much better. When he's so much better. It's like Octor is saying, be enthralled with the sun, be dazzled by the sun, be fixated on the sun, be marveling at the sun, be astonished by the sun, be captivated by the sun, be charmed by the sun, be delighted in him. But before we close, 
Maybe if you're honest, you're here today sitting in the pew and you say, yeah, I know this. But if I'm honest, he doesn't capture my heart. I mean, he doesn't. I, I see all this. I know all this. I hear all this. I can read all this. But he doesn't capture my heart. What do you do? I'll give you some pieces of pastoral advice. Number one, you need to ponder Christ's person and worth. Ponder it. Perhaps it could be that he doesn't dazzle you because you're so distracted by the thorns of life that the word of God has not taken root in your soul because you're just so busy. I think the most terrifying soil is the thorns. It's the unbeliever. He's the one who knows the truth, makes a decision for Jesus, looks good for a while, then falls away. Why? Distractions. Oh, man. Distractions. So ponder, ponder the person of Christ. Ponder the the worth of Christ. Take that hour, wake up earlier. Get away for a, a time, a morning, an afternoon walk, an evening. Ponder Christ. Another piece of pastoral advice. Rehearse the majesty of Christ and his mercy available to you. He's the king, but he's also compassionate in inviting and calling and pleading and earnestly begging sinners to come to him. A third piece of pastoral advice. Just consider the hundreds of promises in the Bible God gives to you. Hundreds of them. What can separate us from the love of God? And you could go on and on and on through the promises. For Christ to capture your heart. He holds you in his hand. Nothing can take you out. Number four, fourth piece of advice. Confess the sin and examine your heart. Lord, am I yours? Maybe you are his and And you're distracted. And that happens to all of us for a time. But maybe Christ hasn't dazzled your heart. You love the benefits that he gives you. But you've not been enraptured by the glory of Christ. Confess. Examine. And then the fifth pastoral counsel is really simply come back next week. Because in chapter two, there's a warning. Pay attention to Christ and don't drift. Hold on to him. It's like he's the only anchor that you can hold on to for firm footing. Pay attention and don't drift. And you know what? With all of this, let's just acknowledge here in the closing moment, we live in a world that seems to be going up in smoke. We live in a world and a culture and an era where there are threats of war and rumors of war all around. I mean, there are cosmic disturbances. There are global animosities. There is false religion everywhere that seems to be unifying unbelievers together. Seems to be paving the way for the Antichrist and his one world government system that is to come. And there's rebellion and there's God-hating autonomy. What do we have to know? What what is Hebrews 1? What's what's the benefit of Hebrews 1 for us? Answer, anchor your soul in this. The Son is better. He is better. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This one is better. This one is secure. Look to him. Remember that this week. Even when you're tempted to fear and you're tempted to worry and you see the shifting of our culture and our society and our world all around us. What a great Savior 
who is the king, he is God, he is creator, and he is the warrior. We worship him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you have given all of these proofs in Hebrews 1. To show us that Christ is superior. He is better. We worship and honor and praise him. In Jesus' name we pray.